Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how's it going today? It is going fantastic today, Tim. I hope everyone listening, I hope they're doing as fantastic as I'm assuming you are doing and myself. The guest we have on today truly took us by surprise, at least speaking for myself, expecting to talk about one thing. We end up talking about that, but we go so much deeper into this topic. It was truly kind of eye-opening. And before we get to that, Tim, open my eyes. Am I accurate in assuming you're doing fantastic? <laughs> I know. I never say anything different. I am doing great. <laughs> I'm really excited to introduce our conversation with Harvard professor Taya Miles. And she is very impressive. And we're impressive too, for the record, because now this is like the second Harvard professor uh, this summer that we've had on Crawl Space. So take that other true crime shows. But she's also a writer and a really good one. And the topics of those books are historical. She has nonfiction. She has fiction. But even her fiction stories, she blends in historical moments in order to create like a teachable text to understand why these ghost stories have the origins that they have. And I think that's where it got really unexpected for me is that you go on these dark tourism ghost tours or you read these stories and it takes someone like Professor Miles to introduce the common reader or the common fan of ghost stories to the history behind it and what's fair and what's not and what's true and what's not what's exploited and what's not really fascinating stuff yeah it really is and you can learn more about her writing at tiamiles.com all of her books are there and they're really interesting i'm really glad that she joined us for this episode and tim for those people out there who really want to hear this episode without the commercial breaks and for that matter every episode that we have for Crawl Space and our other shows Missing in Dark Valley, there must be a place where people can access those with ease. There is. Folks can now access Crawl Space Premium on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. You get Crawl Space ad-free bundled with Missing and Dark Valley. All ad-free. You get early releases and our weekly bonus show, which everybody loves. So make sure to check that out. And Professor Taya Miles is on pretty much every social media site as Taya Miles, T-I-Y-A Miles. So be sure to follow her. And that leads me to my next question, Tim. Where can folks follow us as long as they're out there following Taya? Follow us at Crawl Space Podcast or Crawl Space Pod. And before we get to this conversation, we just want to remind our listeners that the nonprofit that Tim and I are on the board of is hosting its first annual 5K Run for the Missing. This is going to be on Sunday, October 8th at 11 a.m. in a little town just north of Boston, Massachusetts. For information on the race, to register, or to just make a donation for the nonprofit, you can go to piftm.org slash run, or you could go to runsignup.com and search Run for the Missing. And the registration fee goes directly to the nonprofit Private Investigations for the Missing. You will also receive a commemorative t-shirt with your registration, and you'll be entered into a raffle and eligible to receive one of the many amazing raffle prizes. And these links will also be in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to break quick for commercial here, and we'll be right back with Professor Taya Miles. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, 
as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Dr. Taya Miles, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you for having me. I'm in pretty good spirits. How about you? I like that answer. I am now in really good spirits as well because you said <laughs> that. And thank you for coming on. We had a little bit of my mistake. I sent you a bad link. So we were working through that. We're into about 20 minutes of when we were supposed to talk. But you came on. You're super chipper. You seem ready to go for this conversation. Welcome to the show. You're a fantastic writer and an honor to have you on here. Thank you. Yes. Can you tell our audience who you are and what you do? Mm-hmm. My name is Taya Alicia Miles, and uh, my middle name, Alicia, is in honor of my dear, beloved grandmother who has passed on. Her name was Alice Banks, and I am a scholar. I'm a scholar of American history and American studies. My work focuses on African-American history and Native American history and women's history in particular. And I tend to direct my questions towards certain regions of the country, especially the U.S. South and the U.S. West. Interesting you mentioned the U.S. South. We actually came across your work because I don't know if you're familiar with the podcast Southern Gothic. I'm not. Well, the host of that podcast, the creator, is a huge fan of yours. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Brandon Schechsneider. He highly recommended we check out your work. He's really rooted in history. And he he mentioned you, basically said he gets a lot of inspiration from your work. Thank you. He said he's a huge fan of the uh, Tales from the Haunted South. We're going to talk a little bit about that soon. However, your work is so rich when you were deciding that this is what you wanted to do, which came first? Did you want to be a writer? And then you said, this is what I want to write about? Or you saw the topics and you said, now I have to figure out how to be a writer. I mean, well, my first response to that question would be that I wanted to be a writer since I was in the fifth or sixth grade. I remember writing a book of poems for, for a class that I really enjoyed and writing a play for a recreation center which was called Super Duper Sam. Back then I thought the name Samantha Shorten to Sam was just too cute. And our center actually put it on. It was really fun. So that's how I would have answered it, that I was a writer or I wanted to be a writer first. And then I moved into historical subjects. Really, I think it's hard to divide those two areas. One of the reasons that I shared my middle name and its derivation with you, which I haven't done before, actually, it's because my grandmother is such a special person to me. I give her the credit, if any credit is due, for my interest in history. She was an amazing storyteller, just an incredible storyteller. And, and she loved to be out on her front porch, working with things, picture her garden, like, um, you know, snapping the green beans or something. And she would just tell stories about 
what it was like for her growing up in Mississippi and what it was like for her being a part of a sharecropping family and what it was like to move north to Ohio. And I love those stories. I didn't know then that it was history, but once I realized it was history, these different interests just came together in a way that felt seamless and completely natural. Incredibly amazing. We were going to talk about a few of your books, but then now you're, you've mentioned your grandmother. Now I can't help but want to know more about your grandmother. What were some of the early stories that you remember her telling you? Oh my goodness. I just wish that I could show her to you, kind of conjure up right now. I've seen her face as I'm saying this. Um, you all just have to imagine she she was such a wise woman and also so funny. I don't know how she did it. She could tell stories that were really serious, but have you cracking up. So she would tell stories about current events. Uh, for some reason, she loved Princess Diana. I have never been able to figure that out. I don't know what that was about. But she was into Princess Diana and she would tell stories of what she saw on the news having to do with Princess Diana. She was very, very angry, just incensed about what happened to Princess Diana. She could also tell stories about her own growing up years. These are the ones that were, you know, always the most moving and compelling to me. She had some rough times. I mean, she, you know, grew up as um, a black girl in the deep south, in the early 1900s, and this was a difficult identity to have, a very hard place. And her family experienced poverty, and her family experienced racial threats. Her family was actually forced off their farm uh, in a story that she tells. And she was she was there. She remembered it. It was very traumatic to them. But the way she told that story was always with an emphasis on the positive aspects of it. Because when her family was forced off of uh, the farm that they owned, one of her older sisters was able to sneak away a cow of theirs and to take it to a neighbor's house. And that neighbor saved it for them. So they lost their land. They had to leave immediately because they were being threatened by a group of white men with guns. I mean, I'm just, I, I kind of hate to say that because it's so direct and raw, but that's what happened. That's the way she told it. And then they were extremely poor and had to go and live on other people's property and, and turn to sharecropping. But they had that cow and, and having that cow gave them something of their own. It gave them just a small way to provide for themselves. And it represented the resistance and the resilience and, and the spunk of Black girls and black women. So that story has just meant so much to me. That's a really uh, incredible story. And then your grandma and her family moved to Ohio? Yeah, to Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where I was born. How do you like Cincinnati? I like Cincinnati. I have positive memories of Cincinnati. And, you know, I'll tell you, over the course of my years living outside of Ohio, I have been really frustrated with people kind of dumping on Cincinnati, dumping on Ohio, <laughs> dumping on the Midwest. I went to school in Massachusetts, and I remember people telling me or joking around saying, you know, um, oh, you're from Ohio. Do they even have streetlights there? Oh, come on. that That's a little harsh. This is the truth, Lance. I'm telling you the honest God truth. They would tease me about being from Ohio as if it was, you know, being from you know, a, a, a corner that only had dirt in it and a couple of weeds. It was really, really bad. So I will defend Cincinnati and, and Ohio uh, to the end, regardless of... The fact that um, the politics in Ohio have changed <laughs> since the time when I was growing up. We need to get your verbal consent right here. Our partner, Jennifer Amell, is living in Cincinnati right now. She wasn't going to like it any way you sliced it. So we need your verbal permission to at least play to her privately that little cut of you saying, I love Cincinnati. I think it's great. Please play it to her and tell her to go to the Mercantile Library downtown. Go to the 
Mercantile Library. It's a beautiful old building, lots of amazing old books, and they also have peregrine falcons that they have a, um, a little nesting box for outside the window. Yeah, everybody loves Cincinnati. It's just a fact. You mentioned Boston. What are your ties to Boston? I have many unexpected ties to the Boston area. I went to a boarding school in Concord, Massachusetts when I was was I 15, I think. I went on a scholarship program. I was very fortunate to be able to go. Uh, it's a program called A Better Chance, which still exists, and so people should you know give money to it or apply to it. That was just a whole thing that I've all going to do now. That was just a whole culture shock and interesting experience, but uh, it set me up for a different kind of life than I than I ever really imagined for myself growing up in Cincinnati, which is a great city despite its challenges and problems. From that boarding school in, in Concord, Mass, I ended up uh, applying to Harvard where I went to college. And uh, I'm now back in the area working as a professor. Okay, so you've mentioned a bit about your inspiration for your writing coming from your grandma and, and stories about the South. You've written a lot about the South. Well, uh, the South makes such an impression, doesn't it? I mean, it makes an impression on us individually, I think. If we've heard stories about the South, lived there, visited there, it's made an impression on the nation as a whole because of its very deep and oftentimes disturbing history. Growing up listening to stories about the South made me feel as if I was kind of halfway a Southerner. It just felt like a part of my own DNA when I heard my grandmother talk about what it was like in the South. Those stories weren't just about racial terror, though they were. They were also about family, about landscape, about food. And when I think back to the things she would say, I, I can just see in my mind the way she would describe the pies that her mom made and, you know, all the cooking they would do and everybody going to church and the experiences they would have there together. So it feels like a place I am from, even though I'm not. I think it's also a place that the nation is from, even though the nation is quite varied and diverse in terms of region and population, because so much of the history that has shaped our nation and shaped our understanding of racial politics, which are very important, unfolded there. Do you feel like there's the convergence of understanding and debate when you're writing your your books and you're telling your stories about the South? This is a way to bridge any gaps that might need bridging before it turns into something more serious, a more serious disagreement. What you've just expressed, the notion of a piece of writing doing bridge work, is something that I actually strive to do. I don't always say it. I probably rarely say it. Maybe I don't want to you know, show my cards. <laughs> I want to draw people in. But I absolutely hope that my work is written in such a way that it's open enough that people who have different views, you know, across the spectrum about many of these issues would actually want to come in and want to engage with me, want to consider these ideas. And of course, I I hope that they will feel encouraged, you know, inspired to think consciously about the ways in which they engage with others in the world and how they engage with the ecological surround they find themselves in, how they engage with history, and so on. After hearing what you said about your grandmother and how she went through the racial terror and poverty and that one cow represented the future and hope and as small as it might seem today, it's something that was so big back then. That struggle, you hear that in your words, like you can you can feel that in your words when you're reading. And what I'm trying to say is 
at some point, if you're not open enough to take responsibility for yourself today, when you look at what has happened in the past, you can hear that early on in your books. And I'm wondering if that was intentional. I, especially as I've, as I have had the chance to write more books over time, have become much more conscious about how I want to shape those books. And I really do try to shape my books in a way that feels like an open door that people will come in and will feel welcomed, even if they know they're going to be sitting in a hard, uncomfortable chair for part of the time. And so I, I do I do try to give a little bit of a, a hint that things are going to be uncomfortable, but you're still welcome here. And I, I want to have the conversation about these issues because we have to have them, I feel, within our relationships, in our communities, you know, in our country. If we don't have these conversations, I think that we just become more and more distant from each other. And that's not what we need going forward. That's why you're a Harvard professor and I'm not. You just took that mess of a question and made it into exactly what I meant to say. It was a great question. And I want to just tack on to this. I feel that it's a shared responsibility. So if the reader chooses to pick up my work, and I'm so grateful when any reader does, they are entering into some kind of relationship with, with me as the author, with the various historical figures that I bring forward and, and um, interweave into the books. And I'm also entering relationship with them. But I feel like we both have to do our part. So the reader, I hope, will do their part by sticking with me when it gets tough. And I do my part by trying to make that material bearable so that people can stick with it and can actually take it in and reflect on it and then maybe exit the book with a little bit of a different perspective about their lives and about uh, the history of our, our country and the future of our country. You've written a new book that was just released in June 2023. It's called The Cherokee Rose, a novel of gardens and ghosts. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Sure. Uh, the Cherokee Rose is a ghost story. I did not expect many years ago that I would ever be writing ghost stories, but I ended up moving into this terrain kind of unexpectedly around... 2011-ish, when I was working on a different book that we might talk about. At that time, I already had in my head a lot of research that I had done about the history of slavery, particularly the history of Black people who were enslaved by Native Americans in uh, what is now the U.S. South and, and what was previously Indigenous land, and in my view, by moral rights, which would still be Indigenous land. And so I had this research that I was working with. I wrote my dissertation on this topic. I wrote a couple of books on this topic, and it was just kind of in my head. I always felt that I wasn't fully able to communicate all that I was experiencing and observing at these historic places in the Cherokee Nation of the South in works of history. There just wasn't enough room or there wasn't enough allowance within that very serious academic form to explore things that were more experiential. For example, I visited a particular plantation in what used to be the Cherokee Nation several times. And this is a plantation that is now known as the Chief Van House State Historic Site. It's in Chatsworth, Georgia, in North Georgia. And whenever I went there, I felt things. I felt all kinds of things. I experienced things that didn't have room to appear in the histories that I wrote based on research connected to that historic site. 
those experiences and those feelings were always just with me. They were there, I think, kind of waiting for a chance to be expressed. That chance for expression was really pushed forward when I ended up doing some ghost tours during a trip to Savannah. And I realized while taking those tours that ghosts are potent cultural messengers. The people were paying a lot of money to take these tours, experiencing these tours in lots of different ways. And while some of the attendees, the attendees that may have been diverse in terms of where they were from or their perspectives on ghosts, they did have something in common, which was they showed up and they paid. So they wanted to experience something having to do with, with hauntings and, and, um, and, and, and a ghostly realm tied to history. There was a period of time when these different experiences, these different kind of flows of observation came together. And I realized that I wanted to write a novel about all my research that I had been engaging with, having to do with the enslavement of Black people in the Cherokee Nation and in Native spaces, and that perhaps the best way to write the story would be to include a ghost. Because if I included a ghost, readers who might think, look, I don't want to read novel about slavery, or I don't want to think about the double atrocity of Indigenous people owning Black people as property, they might say, well, but I kind of want to read about a ghost. And so I did that. I, I basically took a couple of different key historical moments and events that I had uncovered in my archival research, and I fictionalized them a bit and created new characters. And I joined them together with a ghost who became like a guide in the story, helping people in the contemporary moment understand what had taken place in the past on this plantation. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. And I totally hear what you're saying about ghosts being a potent cultural messenger. Yeah, it's a wonderful way to describe that. I'm wondering, because you know so much about the history and the atrocities and the horrible things that you have to write about, is it also easier for you to say, I'm going to put a ghost in here because now at least this is my control over the story? I can direct at least something here? Well, that's interesting. Um, I did not think of it that way when I was writing, but I did know that I wanted to be able to imagine justice for people in the past who had experienced enslavement and other kinds of exploitation. So I, I wanted justice, maybe a little bit of revenge, as, as awful as that sounds and, and as ambivalent, ambivalent as I feel about saying that, for people in the past who had been exploited. It is true that by creating a ghostly figure, I as the author could do all kinds of things <laughs> that I couldn't do before, which is I could traverse time. I could make things happen that would really shake up the world of the fictionalized characters. I could actually perhaps balance the scales of justice to a certain extent with a kind of figure who wasn't bound by time and who wasn't bound by social expectations, who wasn't bound by any of the kinds of barriers that we experience today around fully confronting these issues. Yeah, that's that's a great way in into a story like that. And speaking of hauntings, you've you've written about uh, hauntings before too. You have a book called Tales from the Haunted South. Can you tell us a little bit about this one? Yeah, well, that's the book I was referring to 
when I responded a moment ago that kind of jumpstarted my hyper-awareness of ghosts and hauntings and the role of ghosts in historical engagement and historical understanding. And that opened my eyes to this subcategory of tourism uh, that's known as dark tourism. I knew nothing about dark tourism before I started working on this book, Tales from the Haunted South. And I really did stumble on it. I, I stumbled into the subject matter. I was down in Savannah. I did want to do some historic tours. I really wanted to see another part of Georgia, which I studied for a long time, but in a different way. And I really wanted to uh, to be inspired by the place as a writer. And I was going to those beautiful historic squares in Savannah. And I had a plan of which historic homes I was going to tour. And as I was walking by a random house that was not on my list, I was called over, beckoned over by a woman standing outside who's advertising tours. You know, I thought, well, why not? Why not add this one? I took a tour of this house known as the, the Sorrel Wheat House. And I was completely shocked, caught off guard to realize that this was in some ways a ghost tour because the tour narrative uh, included a supposedly a terrible murder that uh, had occurred in, in the home when the patriarch and, and slaveholder, the enslaver of the home, had been engaged in a, you know, a quote, affair with a young Black woman there. And, and she had been found hanged in the slave quarters. I was not expecting this story on this tour. Because I had entered during the daytime and it was a historic tour, supposedly, I thought that a Black girl, a Black young woman had been terribly, terribly abused. I was really, really upset after that tour. I was so upset. I left the tour and called my mother, which is what I do. <laughs> I don't know, you know how to you know, process something that I've experienced you know, in my research or my work. And I thought right then that no matter what I had planned to write next, I was going to change my plans and write about this story, write about this young woman whose name was Molly, write about her biography, her life, her experience, because I thought that that could in some small way help to make amends for the terrible way that she had been treated historically and for the way in which she was being described in, in the present day at the time. That was back when I had no idea that the story was fabricated. That took a long process of research, and that's what took me into exploring and researching ghost tours in the South more generally, because once I started doing some research and realized that there's no evidence pointing to this terrible abuse and this terrible murder of this young woman who was said to still haunt the house, I started asking questions about if there's no evidence, if it most likely didn't happen, why would anybody want to tell this story? Why would anybody want to collect money and to invite people in to hear about the terrible abuse of a Black girl and her awful, atrocious murder? And by the way, another part of the story, the suicide of the white woman of the household, the, uh, the, the so-called you know, mistress. Why would anybody want to do that? I mean, that set me off on an exploration of are there any other places like this in the South where enslaved women and Black people are the centerpiece of haunted tour narratives? And if so, why and what is going on? So I did explore those questions. I did visit many other sites. I did find what was a very 
disturbing picture, a disturbing reality of enslaved Black ghosts, of people who were supposed to have been in the stories, in the tour narratives, enslaved in the past, who are said to come back and haunt these urban manor homes or these plantations or the streets of cities like New Orleans today. And it is those hauntings that were attracting tourists. So I explored this. I wrote a book about it. I surprised myself in many ways in writing that book. I also, through that process, was gathering the information and understanding that led me to think about ghosts and hauntings and ghost stories in a different way, to think that they could actually perhaps be cultural levers because they're all over the place in a way that I found lacking and that I was critical of, but they were still there and they were still drawing people in, which suggested that they may be effective in engaging people with these histories that could be done in a more respectful way or in a more productive way. I've actually done that tour of that house and heard ah. yeah, heard, heard the story. I do appreciate a good ghost tour when the guide is as engaging as the ones in Savannah. I did not have a moment that stopped me so much like your moment where I had to do something and engage myself in looking deeper into something like what you did. What's that moment like? Does it take a while for you to realize I need to dedicate a chunk of my life to this now? How long does that process take? Well, this was immediate. This was immediate because my feelings were so so strong and overwhelming when I left that house. I didn't say before, but once I decided outside the house, I was standing right outside the, the gates, um, and you've been there so you can imagine this, outside the gates, but still beside the slave quarters. So right by the building where she um, supposedly had been murdered. I stood there and I knew, I just knew, because I was overwhelmed by emotion. The, the feeling of, of injustice, that it was wrong and awful enough to have been enslaved, but then to have the story of your exploitation used for the profit of somebody else, the story in which you are being abused again, your memory is being abused, you're being disrespected again, that was just, I couldn't sit with that. I could not accept that. And so I knew right then that I was going to be writing about Molly. That's before I knew that the story was fabricated. And I decided to go back the ghost tour. This had been the history tour, <laughs> not even the ghost tour. And the paranormal aspects of the narrative had been somewhat muted during that tour. Now, they were strong enough for me to react the way I did, but that wasn't the focus. I went back to the ghost tour where the hauntings, the multiple hauntings and the multiple violent acts were the focus. And during that visit, I was invited, everybody on that tour, I think at that time, was invited to step into the room where Molly was supposed to have been found dead, hanging from the rafters or something. And I remember just feeling a very strong emotional and physical no. Like, no way. There's no way I'm stepping into that room. Because it just seemed so uncaring insensitive, disrespectful, as if there, there was no concern for the dignity of the dead. And so that experience, the ghost tour, just underscored what I already felt, that I wanted to kind of go on this mission to restore Molly to her dignity, if that's even possible, um, with the limited tools that I have as, you know, as a writer. But that's when I found out the things I just shared, that there's probably no Molly there's no evidence that any of this happened. And then I felt 
that, well, quite honestly, I felt that it was uh, an ethical crime, you all. That's how I felt. In, in saying that this was almost sort of an ethical crime, does that make you like hyper aware now when you hear stories like this? And have you done any further experiments with this? Have you gone on any tours that have been similar to see if you could find the same type of result emotionally for yourself? Well, at the time when I was working on that book, I did go to several tours, ghost tours, walking tours, haunted house, haunted plantation tours, cemetery tours. And I wasn't really looking for my emotional reaction, but I was having emotional reactions. I wasn't looking for them, but I was having them. And I think that my own experiences, how I was feeling in these spaces, helped me to be you know, a better or a more understanding observer of other people in those spaces. Because I think my immediate reaction was something like, I'm not going to try to paraphrase, my immediate reaction was, was pretty critical. I'm just going to be very direct here, you all. I'm just very frank. It was pretty critical of the white guys who owned that house, the white guys who gave me the tour of the house when I first went those couple of times, and, and later on the tour guides have, have you know had changed, and I wrote about that as well. I was very frustrated with the white tourists who were taking these tours. I felt very much like, hmm, I see a pattern here. I see a pattern. We're in the South. Enslaved Black people are being re-exploited for profit and for entertainment. And I see mostly white people gaining that economic benefit and enjoying those stories. It was so disturbing. And yet, the more I went on these tours, uh, just a person on the tour, you know, experiencing them myself, as well as observing other people, because I became more aware of the actual diversity of the people on those tours. So even if they were mostly white, they were from different locations. They were from different backgrounds. They had different sexual orientations. They had different religious practices and beliefs. And I know this is because people uh, would chat before the tour, would chat after the tour. I stayed overnight sometimes, and you'd spend more time with people when you're overnight. And I think also a lot of people felt a little off balance in these spaces. They were more, a little more expressive, were more willing to talk with the person over there about why they were there, why they're at the tour, because nobody knew what we were going to see. Or, or what it was going to be like. So I think that feeling of a little bit of anxiety mixed in with some people's um, expectation of being entertained led people to be a little more open and forthright about how they came to be in those places and what they were looking for. And some people were actually searching. I did not see people who were there because I wanted to, to hear about bad things done to Black people uh, or who were there because they thought they were going to enjoy hearing about slavery in a way that was oddly exaggerated and sanitized simultaneously. I saw people who were there because they were actually spiritual seekers or because they went to explore a city in a way that they thought was going to be maybe a bit more authentic or meaningful because they were history lovers, you know, history buffs. People were there for all kinds of reasons. And of course, yes, there were some of the times when there were very young people who just wanted to get drunk and want to go store. Those folks were there as well. But there was a mix. And recognizing that the attendees, the tourists there, were actually diverse in many ways. Recognizing that I was sometimes probably feeling some of the things that they were feeling, such as, okay, that's strange. How come when we walked through that certain room, we all felt weird, right? I mean, there were, there were feelings and reactions in common that helped me to interpret people's presence, their willingness to buy a ticket and show up there with more generosity. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. 
Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. I'm going to be totally candid. I had no idea this conversation was going to go in this direction. I think that this is one of the most fascinating conversations we've had when we've spoken about dark tourism and taking history and telling a story around it. We really do hear and just, I guess, for the most part in society, people who like to hear stories and people who like to tell stories, we enter into it, whether it's a ghost story or not, we go into it wanting to be entertained and if we come out with a bigger picture and some knowledge it's even better and sometimes you don't realize that that happened do you understand that like is this like something that that you're aware you're open to first i want to just underscore what you said about stories and how powerful they can be i mean stories are magical things there's a reason why we as human beings have been telling them for you know, our entire existence. They really can move us. And hearing stories and experiencing stories in place, you know, in real places, adds a whole new and additional dimensions to that feeling of being transported by a story or drawn in to a story. I will admit that I have been on some ghost tours, especially in Savannah, where I felt very drawn into the stories, where I felt fascinated by what was being said. Where even as I had my critical wheels turning, I also was having some kind of maybe emotional, uh, maybe psychological experience of what it was like to be with a group of people in the dark, walking the streets of a historic themed city and hearing stories of presences there. There's something about that that, that really can sink in to a person's experience. And, and I think part of what is sinking in has to do with the collectivity of humanity. It has to do with not being alone. So there's this feeling that sometimes on these tours, at least for me, that there may be questionable or even frightening things out there in the dark, but we here are huddled together. It's like we have our old, you know, our ancient campfire. You know, we have our, our little light, our little candle, and we, we can kind of collect together as human beings and we can navigate this darkness. We can move through it. There's something that's comforting about that. And so I just wanted to, to share that in response to what you said about tour guides and, and uh, the way in which they can be such effective performers and the way in which they really do, they do research on their tours. They craft their narratives. I think they enjoy engaging with their audiences. It is an art form. And, and what I just wish is that these tour guides who are practicing an art form really think a little more about the ways in which they're representing history the ways in which those representations can't affect the people who are taking their tours and how might they interweave greater historical accuracy, interweave some values around respect for the dead, respect for the past, and the ways in which we perhaps could leverage the past to help us improve our relations in the present. I would love to see that. But you also asked me about, was I open to these kinds of things? And I I need to answer that question. If you want, your answer right there was really good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I want to. I want to answer the question. Okay. So I don't really know. I really, truly do not know how the different cultural inputs we are exposed to come together to to shape who we are and shape how we think. Um, But I think my relationship to these kinds of topics really is the result of different kinds of inputs. I was raised in a Black Baptist church. My family is Christian with different degrees of adherence to or or belief in 
uh, those various uh, faith tenets. I also grew up in a family where there was a strong tradition of storytelling, of the passing on of oral narratives. And I would hear about a great grandmother who I never knew, who was apparently kind of strange, or she was experienced as being strange by older relatives. She couldn't see physically. And so she would just rock in a chair and she appeared to be just kind of staring. But she would she would say things that were, well, that seemed to have a double or more meanings that, that seemed to have come out of Black folk belief I mean, that were about spirits. I mean, she taught uh, one of my aunts, for example, who passed this on to me, the idea that you just don't mess with spirits. You don't mess with them. They won't mess with you. But the idea is that that they are there. And uh, what I think is really interesting is that this great-grandmother's name uh, was Christian. And she had all these beliefs that were maybe not necessarily espoused by or or accepted by Christians. And so there's that aspect of, of my upbringing, you know, kind of this, this, this Christian piece and also this piece which I connect with Black folk beliefs, Black spiritual beliefs in ancestors and in things that we can't see or know. When I decided to work on this research about the so-called enslaved and murdered woman in Savannah, Molly, I was going to have to go back down and do some ghost tours. And I was telling my family, I felt like I had to announce this to my family and just let them know this is what I'm going to be doing. And I remember my sister's reaction. She was she was freaked out. I mean, she, to the point of physically needing to stand up and to tell me, Taya, do not do that. She is a very strong Christian and she felt I shouldn't be involved in anything having to do with, you know, ghosts, spirits, and anything like that. But she also said something like, no, that's true anyway, according to the Bible. <laughs> so, so there was sort of a, a doubleness, a duality in how she was responding to my plan to travel down south and take these ghost tours, which I think actually mirrors the, the duality of my own experience. I'm not religious in the way that she is, but I still have different kind of aspects of that, I think, in the way that I operated. And so when I went to these ghost tours, I mean, I was a little on edge. I was kind of on edge because I will admit that I don't know what's out there. I think that most of us really don't know, even if we pretend that we do. Whether it's because of something existing in reality or because everybody there on the tour is also kind of nervous, or because the tour guides are so talented, or because the history feels so real and close. I don't know what it is. I do not know what it is. But going on these tours is just a different kind of experience. It, my husband is a true rationalist. I hope he doesn't <laughs> tell me later, like, why did you say that on a podcast? But, but he is a true rationalist. But when he went with me to one of these plantations and we were going up the stairs of the supposedly haunted house, very narrow, steep stairs, we entered the room where we're supposed to be sleeping. And we both just had, we felt chills. We felt like this place feels strange. This place feels not okay. And we didn't know why. We didn't really want to talk about why. We just simply acknowledged to each other. Okay, something's off here. We felt it. I'm not prepared to say what it was. I think that it's pretty hard to go on these tours, to be in these places that are so layered with history and and pain, actually, and also perseverance, and not feel like something is here. Something is here that is um, animated. And by that, I'm not saying that spirits, you know, people are animated and in spaces, but something is animated and, and maybe it's the history itself. Maybe it's the landscape. Maybe it's the memory, the way we bring memories to the fore when we collect in historic spaces. I don't know what it is, but there is something. And so was I open, you know, I guess a little bit, 
But uh, I will tell you, I was a lot more open <laughs> by the time I finished the research for that book. And that, that's partly what led me to want to embrace a character who would be a ghost in my novel, the Cherokee Rose, because I think ghosts really have something to say to us, whether they are actually present or whether they are being brought forward through our creativity and our imagination. They carry stories that we need to hear. Well, damn, this has been great. Thank you for inviting me on. I mean, it's not often that I talk about ghosts or um, things that are beyond the frame of, you know, um, the quote real. And it's actually been, you know, very, very interesting and thought provoking to talk with both of you. It's really a challenge to hear these stories and read these stories about ghosts, then apply that tragic history that generated these ghost stories in the first place. But once you do, you know, once you get over that hump, especially like reading your books, once you get through it, all of a sudden it's like a really true, fully formed ghost story. If you like define haunting, right? It's 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 something that stays stays there and should be there and we should be open. Great conversation. This is this has been fantastic. What do you have working on now? I'm working on multiple things right now, as I tend to do. I'm usually revising a book, drafting a book, and starting the research for a book at the same time. I have a, a new book that's going to be out any month now, which is about girls outside, girls outdoors in the 19th century, and the ways in which being outside in natural environments helped to shape their development and how they then applied that later on in life as, as women who were very pivotal to the direction of the nation. And uh, I'm right now writing a book about Harriet Tubman, which has taken me into the question of spirituality in a different kind of way, in a very uh, interesting way. And I'm researching a few different things. I've, uh, we talked about how I've been doing a lot of work on the South, and I have, but I've also been interested in New England recently for reasons that will become obvious or that are for reasons that are obvious to people who heard the, the top of the podcast and I, I now live in Massachusetts again. I'm very interested in Black and Indigenous histories in New England and starting to do a little bit of exploration around that. Thank you so much for spending some time with us, really sharing some incredible insight. So we really appreciate your time here today. Thanks for having me, both of you. Thank you.